Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. As climate negotiations hit some bumps on the road to a final agreement in Copenhagen, the UN's top climate official tells us what it will take to make those talks succeed. The political essentials of a good deal in Copenhagen are ambitious targets for rich nations, ambitious engagement of developing countries, and money on the table to help poor nations uh, with with adaptation. Um, That's not rocket science. Also, how forests can soak up greenhouse gases and still put some green in the forester's pocket. This sort of sad irony in a way that we whack the forest to within an inch of their proverbial eyes, but now they stand ready to help us not only to recover, but to help us solve or provide part of the solution to climate change. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. In December, the nations of the world are planning to gather in Copenhagen to come to a new agreement to fight climate change. The Kyoto Protocol expires in 2012. At the beginning of June, delegates came to Bonn, Germany, for a two-week meeting intended to hammer out some of the details of a new deal. And Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman joins me now from Bonn. Hi there, Bruce. Hi, Steve. So, Bruce, this meeting is now, what, the second in a series of five leading up to Copenhagen in December. I think the U.N. set up so many meetings because they so easily get bogged down and they need a lot of time. What kind of progress this time? Well, for the very first time, there's a working draft of the text of a proposed climate treaty, and that's a big deal. And delegates have been scrutinizing every word and every punctuation mark. But the problems at this stage, Steve, aren't with the details. I spoke with Jennifer Morgan. She's director for the Global Climate Change Program at the European environmental think tank called E3G. I think there was progress just in moving forward on getting that text ready and discussing and understanding country positions. But as far as making progress to really solving the problem and seeing signals from the big uh, polluting countries that they're going to do something significant, no. So what exactly are the signals from big countries that people are looking for? Well, there are two major issues. A, the the big industrial countries, the ones in the Northern Hemisphere that Jennifer Morgan calls the big polluters. The question for them is, how much are they willing to cut greenhouse gas emissions? And B, money and technology. How much support will these big nations provide, you know, the developing countries to help them confront and adapt to climate change, change which they say uh, the industrial nations caused? So how now does the U.S. fit into this? Well, under the Waxman-Markey bill, which is making its way through Congress, uh, the United States would make domestic emission reductions of about 4% below 1990 levels. Now, you might recall, Steve, that the Kyoto Protocol, um, the United States signed that way back when, but never ratified the call for cuts to 7% below 1990. So the United States has has slid backwards in the eyes of, of some. 
And by the way, Steve, the United States isn't alone with such modest targets. Japan announced its goal here in Bonn, and it's just two percentage points below 1990 levels. That's from 6 to 8 percent. And it really disappointed a lot of people, including Tasneem Esop from World Wildlife. What did not help, of course, was Japan's announcement in the plenary about their targets. This was a real trust killer. And Japan chose to make the announcement in a plenary in front of vulnerable countries. And clearly the kind of targets they placed on the table takes us on an emission pathway up to three degrees or beyond. So she's talking about three degrees of global warming. Scientists say we're going to be in deep trouble if we have more than two degrees. Yeah, floods and and climate change like uh, could be cataclysmic. But, you know, it's still early on. And Ivo de Boer, who's the executive secretary of the U.N. Climate Organization, says he's not about to give up. I'm optimistic because the political essentials of a good deal in Copenhagen are not rocket science. The political essentials of a good deal in Copenhagen are ambitious targets for rich nations, ambitious engagement of developing countries, and money on the table to help poor nations with adaptation. That's not rocket science. And how much money on the table are they talking about? I mean, how ambitious is ambitious? (laughs) Sit down, Steve. $200 Fifty billion dollars a year to help poor nations. Um, that does include direct aid and the transfer of high technology. They're going to need a very big table. <laughs> yeah, and there are a number of formulas and, and ways the negotiators are going to come up with it. Um, here's Evo de Borgen. At the end of the day, it it always comes out of the taxpayer's pocket. I hope that we will find a formula that basically um, follows the polluter-pays principle. And as far as I'm concerned, you can eat strawberries in the dead of winter, providing that you pay the environmental cost associated with getting those strawberries to you at that unsustainable moment in time. So the rich pay for their high-carbon diets? Yeah, exactly. That's the idea. And while the United States is the richest nation, China recently surpassed us as the number one polluter of greenhouse gases, which was why all the negotiators here in Bonn were talking about the bilateral negotiations that were going on between the United States and China in in Beijing. I spoke with uh, Jonathan Pershing. He's the deputy special envoy for climate change with the State Department. He just flew in to Bonn right from Beijing. So my sense is that the Chinese are moving, that the Chinese are engaged in this dialogue at the most senior levels of government, that climate change, partly because of a U.S. interest, partly because of the consequences to China of climate change, has taken hold as a topic that they weren't working on five years ago and that's now become one of the significant areas of interest. I think the bottom line is the question of how quickly we can all move. Bruce, uh, before you go, tell me about the speculation about President Obama coming to Copenhagen. Uh, There's a lot of talk about that here, which is why I asked Ivo de Boer, the executive secretary of the United Nations Framework on Climate Change, if he thought President Obama would show up in Copenhagen in December for the final negotiations. I think it would help a lot because Mr. Obama would come to celebrate success, so his arrival would be the signal of that. Mm -hmm. You expect to see him there? I don't know. I don't know. I guess the question is, do you expect to be successful? Um, I I expect to be successful. I think we have to be successful. I think um, that Copenhagen is a unique moment in time, that the world is looking for an an answer there. What we're still lacking is the Paul Revere who can ride out and get us the answer in uh, in Copenhagen. That's why I'm I'm calling for political leadership. But I I think it will be done. (laughs) I could just see President Obama riding a horse through the streets of Copenhagen yelling, climate change is coming, climate change is coming. (laughs) 
So what happens next, Bruce? Well, there are three more rounds of U.N. talks this summer and fall. There's Bonn, Bangkok, and Barcelona. But the real action will be in Italy next month when the world's wealthiest nations meet, and then in September when the heads of state meet at the U.N. in New York. And then there's another big meeting in Pittsburgh, and then on to Copenhagen in December. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, It's my pleasure, Steve. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman at the U.N. Climate Negotiations in Bonn, Germany. The effects of climate change would likely hit hardest in places with the fewest resources to adapt. And we're not just talking about the developing world or tiny island nations. University of California, Berkeley, environmental health scientist Rachel Morello-Frosch studied low-income communities in the U.S. and found something she calls a climate gap. Well, essentially, the climate gap describes a hidden pattern that we have found that indicates that communities of color and poor households within the United States are going to be suffering more from the economic and health consequences of climate change than other Americans. In other words, the climate gap is not only an international question, which has been the focus of a lot of climate change debates over the years. It's also very much an acute domestic problem within the United States. Well, let's take a closer look at a couple of these. Uh, the, the most obvious, I guess, is the warming part of global warming. And you studied heat waves. And I found this pretty striking, that in Los Angeles, a black Angelino is twice as likely to die during a heat wave compared to the rest of the city. Why is that? Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. We've done some analysis in California that shows that communities of color and the poor live in neighborhoods that have less tree canopy, which would protect them from heat, and have a larger proportion of coverage of impervious surface like concrete and pavement, which is going to increase surface temperatures where they live. Um, And they're less likely to own things like air conditioning that can help them cool off. The other issue is that African-American communities, particularly low-income African-American communities, often have pre-existing health conditions that make them more vulnerable to uh, heat waves, such as high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, chronic heart disease, asthma, and these kinds of things in extreme heat waves can be exacerbated. Now, what about uh, the fact that these are already areas that suffer bad air? How might that change if things get warmer? Well, one of the pollutants that's very sensitive to hotter temperatures is ozone, which we know uh, can cause respiratory problems and um, enhanced mortality risks. And so when the weather gets hotter, the pollutants that are in the air, the volatile organic compounds that come from car emissions and industrial emissions, mix with other chemicals to create ozone. And when it gets hot, that chemical reaction increases and the levels of ozone are expected to go up as surface temperatures increase. And again, this is something I'm I'm guessing is going to affect a lot of people. But what you're finding is those most affected are, again, poor communities, low-income communities, communities of color. Yes. So air quality overall is going to be worse for everyone. But the reality is that a lot of the sources of pollution are disproportionately located in low-income communities of color. And so the levels of pollutants, the localized hotspots, as we call them, are going to be even worse in those neighborhoods that are disproportionately hosting a lot of the major pollution sources, the large industrial facilities, the refineries, the power plants, the major transportation corridors and the highways. Those communities are expected to be even more acutely affected by uh, degrading air quality as a result of climate change. 
Now, you know, the argument that I have heard so far in the debate about the the leading climate change bill in Congress now, the the Waxman-Markey bill, is really on the opposite side of the debate here. And it goes something like this. Uh, We shouldn't pass this bill because if we do so, we're going to increase energy costs and those Increased energy costs fall disproportionately on uh, low-income folks, uh, people of color, and you're going you're to hurt the poor by doing this. Now, what do you make of that argument? Well, I think that that argument is essentially problematic. Um, if we look at the issue of energy costs, for example, energy costs are going to go up as a direct result of climate change itself if we do nothing and follow a business-as-usual scenario. Similarly, climate change and water flow and droughts are going to make it much more difficult for power plants to run efficiently. The increased costs of that energy production are inevitably going to get passed down to consumers, and those that are going to be disproportionately impacted by those increased costs are low-income households that pay a higher proportion of their income for energy costs. So the do-nothing scenario is going to disproportionately impact the poor and is likely to be worse than any mitigation strategies that we move forward with to address climate change. We can't pretend that energy costs won't be affected by reducing greenhouse gas emissions, can we? Yes. Either way, low-income consumers are going to pay higher energy costs. But at least when we have a policy in place and a revenue stream generated, we have the resources to cushion the blow for low-income consumers. Rachel Morello-Frosch is an associate professor of environmental science at the School of Public Health at the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Coming up, some Californians fight climate change with forests, and they're turning a profit. Maybe money does grow on trees. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. We continue now with another in our ongoing series of stories about connections between changing forests and the disruption of the Earth's climate. The burning and felling of forests is releasing perhaps one-fifth of all greenhouse gases. The United Nations is trying to protect tropical forests through RED, the U.N. program on reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. But the carbon balance of temperate forests also affects the climate, and that's where California comes in. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet has our story on a new exchange created to make it worthwhile for forest operators to increase carbon storage on their land. On the rural highways of California's Redwood Country, horse trailers share the road with organic coffee delivery vans. From inside his truck, Chris Kelly points at a small grove of tall redwoods in a state park. This is what the whole north coast used to look like. Big, huge trees, widely spaced, lots of understory. But this is now increasingly rare. For mile after mile, rolling hills that were once forested or ranched have been replaced by wineries. No, it's remarkable. And this has all happened really since the 70s when Robert Mondavi put California on the map. Even now, it seems that there's no end in developing undeveloped land into vineyards. That's a concern for Kelly. He's the California director for the Conservation Fund, a group that looks for intact or salvageable ecosystems to buy and protect. 
The iconic large trees were the most valuable ones here. With most of them gone, owners of forest land are more likely to subdivide if they need money, selling off acres here and there. And so if there's some parcels that have coastal views, they sell those off for coastal development. For some that have potential for vineyard or agricultural development, they sell those off. And the result being is that over time you see a fragmentation of the landscape to myriad individual ownerships, each with their own house, each with their own septic system, each with their own domestic animals. And all of a sudden the fabric of these watersheds breaks down. So, about five years ago, Kelly's group purchased a huge piece of land cradling the Garcia River, a stream that slopes down from the coast range into the sea. So we're standing up at the, almost the top of the ridge, looking west to the Pacific Ocean. So everything you see, 360 degrees from here, is part of our ownership. And the sound you hear in the background is the North Fork running pretty strong after two or three days of rain. It's beautiful. The air is clean. We're surrounded by trees. It's 24,000 acres. It's the, it comprises a third of the Garcia River watershed. It has spotted owls. It has coho salmon. It has steelhead trout. And it's got this rich mix of redwood and Douglas fir forest. And so when we had the opportunity to buy it, we jumped at the chance. About the same time the Conservation Fund acquired this property, California was beginning to inventory its carbon emissions in its efforts to address climate change. The writing was on the wall. Emitting carbon would be costly. Growing trees that absorb carbon could be good business. Forest groups and forest owners pushed the legislature to create rules to legitimize this emerging market. Gary Giroux is president of the nonprofit California Climate Action Reserve. The most perhaps was Pacific Forest Trust in San Francisco. The Nature Conservancy was also very active in that debate. The forest industry as well. California officials designated the reserve as the arbiter of forest carbon in the state. So they convened all the interested parties to figure out what was going to qualify for forest credits. It wasn't easy, but they quickly agreed only land that was originally forested could qualify and only native trees would count. And they turned to an expert who had spent years in the woods and then years on computer models for some of the technical work. My name is John Nickerson, and I am a forester. My business is called Dogwood Springs Forestry. In his home office, finished in pine that he milled himself, John Nickerson says that people in the timber business already use computer programs to do land inventories. They count the species, age, girth, and height of trees. But now he and others have adapted those databases and growth models to project carbon in the forest as well. And so for each five-year period, we have an estimate of the volume of trees, the species that will be there, the size of those trees, and their density. And from that, we're able to compute carbon values. So we do this, the modeling approach, we do it for both baseline, and then we do it for our, our anticipated project activities. And the difference between the two is a reduction and can be traded as an offset. The models Nickerson and the Climate Action Reserve use now can estimate amounts of carbon stored in a forest in five-year increments, comparing different land use scenarios. Perhaps the stickiest question for the reserve was how long a landowner must commit to keeping the trees standing, storing the carbon. At first, the answer was forever. Again, Gary Giroux. In our first protocol, 
we guaranteed that permanence through conservation easements. So you were required to have a permanent conservation easement on your land to ensure that the project was permanent. But that requirement caused the commercial timber industry to drop out of negotiations. A lot of private landowners told us, and public landowners, frankly, told us that that was not a mechanism that they were willing to put on their land forever. Recently, a new version of the California Forestry Carbon Rules was released, and the idea of permanence has now been eased. We look at the half-life of carbon in the atmosphere is about 100 years. And so we say that you need to maintain trees that are sequestering carbon for 100 years. Giraud says many companies still find this too strict, but this time they have signed on. I know I met with the Mendocino Redwood Company recently, and, and they told me they've been a company for 10 years. It's very hard for them to imagine signing a 100-year contract. And any landowner who then wants to sell their land has to find a buyer willing to abide by that 100-year contract or else pay back all the credits. Finally, the reserve also had to figure out what to do in the case of fire. Fire can be beneficial or catastrophic, but when there's a contract to preserve a forest for a century, fire becomes a legal risk. All projects contribute into an insurance pool, and so if there is a fire on any given project, we would take credits out of this insurance pool to ensure the ongoing permanence of those reductions. Once an owner has counted the trees on the ground and the computer models have output their projections, the reserve sends an independent company out to verify data by taking tree measurements. That company also checks assumptions in the growth models. If everything checks out, the Climate Action Reserve then issues the landowner one certificate for every ton of carbon he or she has sequestered. For instance, we'll have a forest project that could be issued 100,000 tons of credits, essentially 100,000 tons of CO2 equivalent emissions that have been sequestered. We issue serial numbers for each and every ton, So it's akin to minting a new commodity. This commodity is an emission reduction that has a unique serial number, and those tons are then placed in the account of the forest owner. And they are fungible like any other commodity, that they're free to sell or to retire on behalf of the environment or to hold on to in hopes of selling them in the future at a, at a higher cost. The very first credits verified by the Climate Action Reserve were issued last December. And the Conservation Funds project on the Garcia River was one of the recipients, which, says Chris Kelly, meant acting as sort of a guinea pig. I liken our work to get this forest verified as like driving a train on a track that's still being built. And every once in a while you get to a point where they're still laying the track and you're not sure which way to go. But finally the verification was over and the day came. And so what we got was an email saying we've just posted to your reserve account 78,000 tons of the Garcia River Forest for 2007. That meant the environmental group now had an account holding 78,000 climate reserve tons, also known as carrots, worth about $8 a piece. Back in the Garcia River forest, Mike Stevens, a wildlife biologist, is looking for a pair of spotted owls he's been watching. He's concerned that some unusual weather may have disrupted their nesting. So we're actually now at the base of the nest tree. There's this clump of small diameter redwoods. 
As the trees in this forest mature, the hope is there will be more habitat for the endangered owls. So since we're kind of in their living room of their house, so to speak, the way that I'm going to try to contact them is by doing a a gentle contact call because out of respect, you know, the birds, if they are here, will be sleeping. Stevens has brought mice as bait and makes the sounds of prey. He waits, but no response. So he reluctantly makes a call like another owl in the territory. And swiftly, a large shadow passes over us, and we can hear them, the pair of owls, talking to each other. It's a little surprising the owls chose to nest in this young tree, but the Garcia River Forest doesn't have much in the way of old growth to offer. Chris Kelly of the Conservation Fund explains that because of successive logging, this forest is what you might call a fixer-upper. What we have is a thicket of young trees, all struggling and competing for air and light. So whereas in a mature forest you might have 30 trees per acre, we have 300 trees per acre. And so as a consequence, they're all struggling to grow, and none of them are growing very effectively. It's like an overplanted garden. To move the forest mix toward more mature trees spaced more widely, the group has been cutting smaller trees and selling them for timber. They also need that timber money to pay for repairs after 60 years of commercial logging. On this 25,000-acre forest, we have 220 miles of dirt road, innumerable culverts and stream crossings, 13 bridges, and the roads need to be maintained every year to keep sediments from coming into the river. The bridges are now, at the end of their useful life, will need to be replaced. And so a fixed, irreducible cost of management. And so we thought, why not have the forest help us help itself recover? To cut their timber, they use a labor-intensive individual tree-cutting process called cable yarding. One end of the clothesline that has a motorized pulley, and then the other end of the clothesline is down in the valley or across the valley, and then you string a cable from the clothesline to the ground, and then you can lift individual trees up in the air and then retrieve them with the clothesline. This selective logging is not only making money and helping the forest to mature more rapidly, the carbon audit process for the Garcia River forest shows it's also increasing the rate of carbon storage. Ironically, by us going in and selecting out some of the slower-growing, weaker trees and creating space for the more vigorous trees to grow, we're increasing the rate of carbon sequestration in the forest. So we have modeled the carbon accumulation in the forest over a 20-year period, if we were to just leave it alone, and we've modeled the carbon accumulation in the forest, if we would do this single tree selection. And we found that we get 20% or more carbon sequestered at the end of a 20-year period than had we done nothing. 
And just practically speaking, the way this happens is you remove a tree that's crowded, the sun shines down and, and allows more of what, what trees need to grow to the remaining tree, and its growth actually outperforms or, or outweighs what those two trees would have had if you hadn't cut the one? Exactly, exactly. One, because now there's one tree growing with the nutrients in the space that two trees had to share, and also because the tree we took was the less vigorous, less productive tree. The Conservation Fund isn't the first to discover that taking the small trees and letting the others get large can be a sustainable logging practice. The Menominee Indians in Wisconsin and many private landowners have been doing this for decades. But the land group is among the first to reap a major cash windfall for the accumulating carbon. Kelly says the money is letting them do stream repair more quickly. I would say that on the Garcia River Forest, our net annual income has doubled as a consequence of our ability to sell carbon offsets. And if we were not enjoying the carbon revenue, then we would not be able to put people to work this summer doing some of this restoration work, improving the roads, fixing the bridges. Carbon income is going to be fixing the forest this summer. Carbon income is going to be fixing the forest this summer. And the next, and the next, and the next is my expectation. Kelly points out a paradox that is felt everywhere in the world where people are talking about forest carbon. The forests that are most depleted, most mistreated, sometimes have the most potential for absorbing carbon out of the atmosphere quickly. All the carbon was wrung out of the forest and released to the atmosphere, or in some cases into wood products. But now these young forests are like the dry sponge ready to soak up carbon for the next 100 years. So the forests are here to serve us in a very different way than they served us in the last century. He marvels that in the redwoods, at least, the main income from carbon increase should come over the next 30 to 50 years as the trees are getting big quickly. Just as that income is set to taper off, you could begin to selectively take large trees out of the forest again and make real money from the timber. And carbon offset revenue will get us there. It's about the only thing that will. And so it's this remarkable convergence and sort of this sort of sad irony in a way that, you know, we, we whack the forest to within an inch of their proverbial eyes, but now they stand ready to help us not only to recover, but to help us solve or provide part of the solution to climate change. Forest landowners aren't the only ones taking notice of this new source of income. No sooner had those carbon credits been deposited into the account of the conservation fund than the phone began ringing. Wall Street investors wanted to buy them. They're betting the price will go up once the United States passes a cap on carbon emissions. Pacific Gas and Electric wants carbon credits to offer to its customers who wish to offset their personal energy emissions. Back at the California Climate Reserve, Gary Giraud says these credits have already given birth to a new industry, businesses known as forest project developers. And what we're seeing now is that there are a number of companies out there that are specializing in investing in forest projects to obtain the carbon credits for them at a very economic return. So they invest perhaps a million dollars into a project get the carbon credits at something close to, I don't know, 4 or $5 a ton it costs them to generate those credits, knowing that they can sell those credits at a much higher return later. 
The Reserve has just finished writing rules to certify credits in forests outside of California. They've been asked to verify projects in Georgia, Oregon, and Pennsylvania. Ultimately, many people believe the world needs to change its fuel and energy sources to address greenhouse gas emissions. Giraud and forest carbon experts say the role for trees is to tide us over until that day. And while we're waiting for renewable energy to really take hold and become the dominant energy source, forest management can start today because it doesn't require any new technology. It doesn't require anything other than a commitment to manage forests differently. And if you can manage forests better to increase sequestration in a way that's credible and permanent, you should get some credit for that, and that can help bridge the gap to the new energy economy. In other words, the tree rush is on. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Mendocino County, California. For more information about forests and climate change, check out our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, the little sub that could. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. A team of students and professors from Rutgers University recently launched a project they hope will make seagoing history by remote control. They're sending a little underwater robot across the Atlantic from New Jersey to Spain to learn more about changes affecting our seas. IEEE Spectrum's Ari Daniel Shapiro was there. At 6 in the morning, just as dawn was breaking, Scott Glenn, an oceanographer at Rutgers University, was bristling with excitement. Yes, this is a big day. The, the, the launch of one of these long-duration missions is something you, you work for for months. And uh, when it's finally there, uh, it starts a whole new phase of the project. And so it's about to start a great day. Glenn's talking about the launch of the glider RU-27. This underwater robot looks like a mini yellow submarine, and it's about six and a half feet long. It can stay at sea for months because it has no people on board. It's piloted remotely from a lab at Rutgers on shore. RU-27 zigzags slowly up and down underwater, taking the temperature of the ocean and measuring how salty it is, among other things. Every time the glider surfaces, it uses a global cell phone to call the lab, literally, to send in the data it's collected and receive instructions on where to go next. The information it's collecting might tell us something about the impact of climate change on the ocean. Later that morning, Glenn and part of the glider team were on a boat headed off the coast of New Jersey to do the launch. Gliders are changing the way we go to sea. I used to come out of this field station and we'd spend the whole day and we'd do maybe five stations. It would take us all day to do that. We'd come back exhausted. Now we send out a robot to do the same thing. And instead of going out for one day, it's going to go out for nine months. If successful, RU-27 will be the first remote-controlled object to cross an ocean underwater. 
the route New Jersey to Spain. A team of Rutgers undergrads will be the ones piloting RU-27 from the lab on shore, using everything they've learned about currents and the oceans to make the mission a success. Back in the lab, sophomore and RU-27 co-pilot Emily Rogowski says she's excited about the launch. It's a big day. It's a big day, but honestly, it like it's time. <laughs> RU-27 needs to get out there. We've been working on her for so long. I feel like it's time for her to start this mission. Rogowski and the other half of the team followed the launch from the lab over speakerphone and a webcam. Everyone was eager to get RU-27 in the water and on its way to Spain. When the speakerphone announced the glider had been lowered into the Atlantic, the lab honored the moment. The same jubilation erupted aboard the boat. Good job. Thank you. Good job. Good job. You guys built good gliders. Basic tests of the glider began immediately. Glenn and the team at sea sent RU-27 on short 15-minute missions. But something wasn't right. After diving, the glider was coming up too fast. Tina Haskins helped build RU-27 and was assisting the launch. Yeah, the um, the first test, um, she just didn't dive fast enough. Um, we should have seen her kind of start to descend a little more quickly than what we did. Haskins wondered whether there was a weight missing in RU-27. She phoned the lab to ask if they had found anything suspiciously heavy lying around. Uh, I don't see anything there. The room's nice and clean. In the end, the team figured out there was actually a typo in the mission they programmed. Scott Glenn says RU-27 was just following orders. It's nice that it does exactly what it's told, even if it's wrong. It's probably fine. We'll find that out soon. And RU-27 was fine. The boat team finished their tests, made some last-minute adjustments, and transferred control of the glider to shore. Back at the lab, the team waited for the glider to surface and make its first data phone call. As the folks in the lab finished their tests, they got ready to send the glider underwater to begin its mission. Those on the boat looked at RU-27 bobbing at the surface one last time. happy. This is a great day. Scott Glenn's excitement endured even through this exhausting day. You know, the kids go out on their own. They're ready to go. They're ready to fly. The seven-month journey is not without danger. Severe weather like hurricanes could damage RU-27 or blow it way off course. Sharks might attack it, and it's got limited battery power to make the voyage. Oscar Schofield's an oceanographer at Rutgers. And now what we'll do is when it starts its standard mission, it calls in every six hours, and pretty much everyone's going to be hanging on a phone call every six hours for the next seven months. But that's calmer than it's been the last few months. I'm not sure it's going to be that much calmer. In RU-27's first week at sea, the team had to maneuver around a maze of fishing nets and deal with a sensor malfunction. And that was just the first hundred miles of 3,000. For Living on Earth, I'm Ari Daniel Shapiro. 
And that story comes to us courtesy of Spectrum Radio, the broadcast edition of IEEE Spectrum, the magazine of technology insiders. You can follow the sub's journey online, details at LOE.org. You can come with me and my submarine if you promise to behave. You can join the fun with the happy people far beneath the waves. Just ahead, trying to tame the jungle with a Motor City mindset. But first, this cool fix for a hot planet from Lindsay Breslau. Would you like your receipt or shall I put it in the bag? Asked the cashier. You consider your choices. You could shove the flimsy paper into your bulging wallet or ask for it in the bag, knowing it will probably end up in the trash. Soon you may have a third option, thanks to a company called Transaction Tree. Transaction Tree's new service allows retailers to offer email receipts to their customers instead of paper ones. The service, which will be launched by several retailers in the coming months, emails a copy of the receipt to the customer and saves a copy online at nomopaper.com. This environmentally friendly option could save paper, help consumers keep track of their expenses online, and shorten lines at the cash register. So in the future, when a cashier asks where you'd like your receipt, you could say your inbox would be just fine. That's this week's Cool Fix for a Hot Planet. I'm Lindsay Breslow. And if you have a cool fix for a hot planet, we'd like to know it. If we use your idea on the air, we'll send you a sleek, electric blue, living-on-earth tire gauge. Keeping your tires properly inflated can save over $375 a year in fuel. That's according to a study done at Carnegie Mellon University. Call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or email coolfix, that's one word, coolfix, at loe.org. World War II touched nearly every continent, and while few guns were fired in South America, there was fierce competition for hearts, minds, and resources. A top strategic item, rubber. The Japanese controlled the Asian sources, but as a 1944 war propaganda film declared, a key chunk of the Amazon and its rubber trees were already in the hands of America's leading industrialist. Among the present-day pioneers of the Amazon who are lighting the way for others to follow is Henry Ford. Ford's rubber development on the Tapajos River is an enterprise of historic proportion. Mr. Ford's rubber development was known as Fordlandia. Fordlandia is also the title of Greg Brandon's book in which he explains why Ford Motors set up shop in the Amazon many years before World War II broke out. Henry Ford, by 1927, uh, by the time he acquired a land grant from the Brazilian government, By that point, he had pretty much presided over his own industrial empire, the largest industrial empire in the world. He was one of the richest men in history. The only thing that was missing, the only thing he didn't have control over was was latex, was rubber. So Mr. Ford, who was famous for overcoming almost any obstacle, set about converting a piece of the rubber-rich Amazon into a source of supply and a bit of middle America. Greg Grandin describes what an observer paddling up the river to Fordlandia would have seen. The first thing you would see would be an enormous uh, water tower with the Ford cursive Ford logo on it. At the time, in the 1920s, late 1920s, early 1930s, it was the tallest uh, man-made building in the Amazon. Uh, you would get off the boat, and, and to the left, you would see 
a bunch of small workers' bungalows, not unlike what you would find in mill towns in the United States. Maybe half a mile in from the river, you would see an industrial plant, a powerhouse, uh, a sawmill, state-of-the-art sawmill. And then a little bit further, you'd find the American neighborhood, American zone, with three or four four room houses with porches and they weren't too ostentatious they were properly protestant it looked like something out of uh, out of the midwest the 5000 inhabitants are provided with every means of making life in the jungle healthy happy and comfortable the workers houses are clean and airy and offer a pleasant environment with modern conveniences But there's a reason this film, produced by the Disney studio for the war effort, is considered propaganda. Truth was a casualty. It turns out that from the beginning, Fordlandia was someplace between a disaster and a calamity. Again, Greg Grandin. Well, the great thing about this story is that it really brings together two extremes, uh, Henry Ford on the one hand and and the Amazon on the other. You you really get an epic clash of opposites. At at one point, he famously calculated that it took uh, 7,882 distinct tasks to make a Model T. Uh, but, of course, the Amazon is it's a place where 7,882 organisms could, could be found on any given five acres. It's the most diverse ecological system in the planet, one that moved not towards simplicity but toward the height of complexity. And so you put these two things together and what you get is a story that's almost Chaplin-esque in its absurdity. Henry Ford's managers and engineers, trained in the precision and discipline of his factory's assembly lines, weren't equipped to work in the sweltering rainforest nor did they understand the culture of the Amazon. Setting up the plantation at first and carving out the settlement out of the jungle was hard and often deadly work. Uh, managers showed up from Dearborn, from the Upper Peninsula in Michigan, and they had no, they didn't speak Portuguese, they didn't know much about local customs or certainly local labor relations. And reports came out of the jungle that the settlement was sinking into a kind of cesspool of waste and violence and, and vice. Uh, uh, workers fled from the construction site and they brought with them tales of knife fights, of riots and strikes. Uh, Ford managers defrauded them of pay and they also didn't know what they were doing in terms of how to clear jungle. They turned the forest into a mud hole, burning large swaths of the jungle without the slightest idea of how to plant rubber. Still, despite the setbacks, the Ford industrial machine did get the settlement built, a little slice of Michigan in the jungle, and the rubber began to trickle out. But the culture clash did not disappear, and Ford's ideas didn't jibe with his Brazilian employees. Yes, they tolerated the rigid work schedule, and they coped with their obligatory shoes. They even put up with Henry Ford's passion for square dancing. And the old-time dance orchestra music recorded by Mr. Ford's good friend Thomas Edison that was broadcast over loudspeakers throughout Fordlandia. But when Ford tried to impose a whole wheat diet... Well, that's when Greg Grandin says the workers drew the line. The workers rioted. They weren't interested in eating brown rice or, or whole wheat bread. And December 22nd, 1930, there was an enormous riot that, that almost destroyed all of Fortlandia, overturned trucks and, and uh, threw equipment into the river and, and broke windows. And the American managers had to flee into the jungle or flee uh, by boat into the middle of the river. And the Brazilian army had to come in to suppress the riot. The town was rebuilt after that. And Disney's film celebrated Fordlandia as a marvel of modernity and the American way. Science and skill work hand in hand to produce the finest rubber trees possible. Scientific care, the watchword of the plantation, 
is extended to the human element, too. Today, the Ford plantation is a successful enterprise, a tribute to skill and science, the new weapons of the 20th century pioneer. But soon after the weapons of war were laid down in 1945, Ford Motors sold Fordlandia back to the Brazilian government for pennies on the dollar. It may well be that peace and the invention of synthetic rubber doomed Fordlandia, but at least as responsible, if not more so, was Ford's vision of an American utopia in the Amazon. Fordlandia is still standing today, and though Henry Ford himself never visited his unsustainable utopia, Greg Grandin has been there. It's a small town, a little forlorn. Brazilians still live in the old worker bungalows uh, that Ford had set up for the rubber workers. Uh, the American town is completely abandoned, given over to the jungle. There's a um, the houses where the managers used to live in are not inhabited except for uh, some pretty scary bats. There's some glaze of guano covering the old plaster walls, and uh, the houses are pretty derelict. One of the most uh, evocative things is that the factory whistle still blows four times a day. Uh, here you are in the middle of the Amazon, and there's certainly no work to go to. And, and you hear the factory whistle blow in the morning, and then, and then for lunch, and then for dinner. Uh, it still marks time for, for many of the inhabitants who live in Fordlandia. So, Greg, why did you write this book? I wrote the book because I think the story of Fordlandia captures something specific or particular about the U.S.'s sense of itself. Ford's obsession with raising America in the Amazon it had almost nothing to do with the Amazon itself. The more Fordlandia failed on its own terms, that is, to grow rubber, the more the project was justified in idealistic terms as a civilizing mission. And I think that resonates uh, with today. Greg Grandin's book is called Fordlandia, The Rise and Fall of Henry Ford's Forgotten Jungle City. Up here in the land of the hot dog stand, the atom bomb and the good humor man. We think our South American neighbors are grand. We love them to beat the band. South America, babaloo, babaloo, IEA, babaloo. On the next Living on Earth, there's a new focus on farming in the war on drugs in Colombia. Why would people leave a lucrative industry, a lucrative crop? And purely because they want to move into the legal economy. They do not want to live with violence. And coca, they understand, it comes with violence. How a sustainable harvest is saving lives and livelihoods, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in the California desert. The eerie call of the greater sage-grouse and the howls of a coyote echo across the arid sagebrush of California's Great Basin. These tracks are part of the California Library of Natural Sounds collection called Quiet Places, a sound walk across natural California. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Srikandaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. 
Our interns are Annie Glosser and Lisa Song. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uncommon heroes dedicated to the common good. Learn more at skoll.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.